right. Welcome, everyone. This is Christy Balsells, and the Executive Director with MitoAction's monthly teleconference, and today is June 1st, 2012, and we're really happy today to welcome Dr. Richard Fry, who's joining us from Arkansas to talk to us about mitochondrial disorders, cerebral folate deficiency, and autism spectrum disorder, um, an area that uh, particularly amongst the mitoautism community has really been getting a lot of buzz lately, so uh, we're excited to have Dr. Fry and his broad background in uh, neurodevelopmental disorders as well as um, neurology and psychology and specific testing related to ASD and mitochondrial dysfunction um, coming today. So, Dr. Fry, is there anything else you'd like to say about um, your background or introduction before we get started on today's topic uh, and follow along with you? Well, I think you've done an excellent introduction. Um, so I'll start to um, go over the slides, if that's okay with everyone. Sounds great. So let me just um, reference everyone one more time who's listening that there are slides to follow along with Dr. Fry, and you can find those by um, searching on the website for cerebral folate deficiency, and it should take you to the page that is mitoaction.org slash mitochondrial disorders and cerebral folate deficiency um, autism spectrum disorder. And that has the slides for you to follow along today. And our callers are all queued up and ready to listen and follow along with you, Dr. Fry. So go ahead. Super. Well, thanks so much for this uh, invitation. Um, it's a lot of um, uh, information to cover. Um, and so, um, you know, I'll go through it and, and you guys can ask questions at the end. Um, so, uh, of course, uh, I wanted to review a little bit uh, about um, autism. You know, as we know, um, there's uh, um, been over the past few decades a, a precipitous rise in the uh, prevalence of autism. And, uh, and as you can see, this slide actually is a couple years old and, um, and talks about the, the prevalence when we were talking about it in one in 150. And, and now, as you probably know, the... the um, uh, the uh, new statistics put it at uh, 1 in 88 as for the wider you know, autism spectrum disorder. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's really a uh, very important you know, area, and, uh, and, and it's important that we get to the bottom of what's causing it and, uh, and find better treatments for it. Of course, there's a debate of whether it's a, a shift in diagnosis or a true rise in the number of cases. You know, um, I don't know that it matters all that much because there's a lot of kids that really need our help either way. Um, just to go over how we categorize the uh, pervasive development disorders, and of course this is the DSM-4, which um, is what we've been using um, for quite some time, but the DSM-5, which is going to be coming out soon, will change this a little bit. But the terminology is quite confusing. There's uh, the category of the pervasive development disorders, of which the autism spectrum disorders are just one, and the other disorders uh, that are included in that are Rett syndrome and childhood disintegration um, disorder that uh, we don't talk about um, all that much. Rett syndrome, um, as you may or may not know, is a, a genetic syndrome um, that's... A, that's um, almost exclusively confined to females, um, um, and it's uh, very rare. Childhood disintegrative disorder um, is uh, not really studied as much as the autism spectrum disorders, but it's associated with, um, uh, with regression in skills after the age of three, and it's thought to be more associated with some type of underlying neurologic or metabolic abnormality than the autism spectrum disorders. The autism spectrum disorders are defined in, in three different categories. That is, uh, autistic disorder, which is many times thought as the most severe form, uh, pervasive development disorder, which is thought to be um, less severe, and Asperger's disorder, um, which um, tends to have many of the other characteristics of the autism spectrum disorders, but doesn't tend to have problems with actually language development. In the DSM-5, um, under the autism spectrum disorders, these different subcategories are going to go away um, for better or for worse, and there's going to be slightly different definition. Um, we can define autism just uh, 
just kind of briefly, um, we'll talk about what defines autism. Um, so um, um, the autism spectrum disorders are defined by having abnormalities in three different areas um, of, um, uh, and those are social impairments, communication impairments, and repetitive and uh, behaviors and interest. And autistic disorder, um, you, in autistic disorder, you have symptoms in all three of these categories with uh, particularly many, uh, t at least two categories of symptoms in social impairment. So social impairment seems to be more severely affected, at least at minimum. Whereas PDD, um, you may not have all of the characteristics and it may not be um, that severe. And Asperger's disorder, um, you usually don't have what they call the communication impairments. Now, um, it's been uh, decided for the new um, diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5, that the communication impairments and the social impairments are really so difficult to tease out as two different types of impairments that they're going to be combined. Um, so um, that, will, that is one of the reasons why these subcategories will um, go away at that time. So what causes autism? Well, you know, many studies have really looked at, um, at genetic um, abnormalities that cause autism. And, um, the, and if you look at um, uh, uh, g different genetic abnormalities, you can add up, you know, how many um, uh, individuals with autism are affected, you know, by the different abnormalities. Fragile X um, accounts for a large percentage um, that is 5% of the genetic abnormalities of children with autism. Rett syndrome only occurs in females, and since there's a, a, um, fewer females that are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders, probably less than 1% overall. Cytogenetic abnormalities, that is abnormalities in the chromosomes, probably uh, um, uh, account for about 5%. And then with the growth of something called chromosomal microarrays, where we can look for... Um, areas of deletion and duplication within the genome, we're finding um, that, uh, that about 10% of children with autism will have these deletions or duplications. So, uh, you know, the first point is, well, you know, that's great that we have these genetic markers, but it leaves, you know, over, it leaves 79% plus children um, without a genetic diagnosis. And, you know, there's, um, there's, um, studies that show that some of these genetic diagnoses are associated with metabolic derangements such as mitochondrial disorders. So we're really launching on a new understanding of autism. Autism, as I went over, is defined by a collection of symptoms, um, not by any type of biomarker or, or medical abnormality. Um, but that the symptoms that represent autism, this collection of behavioral symptoms, are associated with certain underlying medical disorders in many cases. Um, and in many cases, we're finding that autism is a multisystemic disorder with primary neurologic manifestations. That is, other parts of the body seem to be affected in children with autism. And it may be that um, the neurologic manifestations are manifesting as a larger part of things that are happening to the body. Um, or also understanding that really autism probably arises as a complex interaction between genetics, environment, and the dynamics of development which is very complex. Uh, today in the talk, I'm going to review the evidence for mitochondrial dysfunction and disease in autism spectrum disorder, the biomarkers for mitochondrial dysfunction in autism spectrum disorder, the importance of cerebral folate deficiency um, and or insufficiency, and I'll talk about that a little bit, um, and the folate receptor autoantibody, and how cerebral folate deficiency or insufficiency is diagnosed and treated. So what is the evidence for mitochondrial disease and dysfunction in autism spectrum disorder? Uh, well, recently, Dr. Rosignol and I um, did a uh, systematic review and meta-analysis of all of the papers that have um, discussed or reported um, mitochondrial uh, dysfunction or disease in autism spectrum disorder. And um, as part of the meta-analysis, we actually looked at many different um, statistics. We combined them from 
from several papers of um, biomarkers of mitochondrial disorders and also um, looked at studies that looked at uh, the incidence of mitochondrial disease in autism. Um, there's three papers that have looked at the incidence of mitochondrial disease in autism. Um, and um, they've had um, varying numbers as far as what the prevalence is, but uh, for the most part, if you do a meta-analysis and, and um, find out what the overall percentage is, it comes out to about 5% uh, for mitochondrial disease and autism spectrum disorder. Now, um, you may not say that, well, maybe that's not um, a lot, um, and we may expect more. And we may expect more for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that um, uh, if we look at the percentage of abnormal biomarkers for mitochondrial disease, that is, if we look at lactate pyruvate, lactate pyruvate ratio, elevations in alanine, and, and so on, we find out that these... Um, uh, that the prevalence of abnormal biomarkers of mitochondrial function are much higher than uh, the uh, prevalence of disease. Um, and, um, and this is really um, something that really um, uh, requires uh, further research and, and for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things is that the studies that looked at strictly defined mitochondrial disease in autism spectrum disorder only used one biomarker, that is uh, lactic acid, and not other biomarkers. And also they um, used uh, the modified Walker's criteria, which is a very strict criteria and may not be um, all that inclusive. Um, so um, it may be the lower limit of the uh, percentage or the prevalence of, um, of mitochondrial disease in autism spectrum disorder. And you have to contrast this with uh, a study, which actually I didn't include in the slides, um, from JAMA, that, uh, where they actually looked at uh, lymphocytes um, of uh, children with autism spectrum disorder and typically developing um, individuals, and they compared the mitochondrial function of those uh, lymphocytes. And statistically, they found that 80%, um, or 8 out of 10, of the children with autism spectrum disorder had abnormally uh, functioning um, mitochondria in their lymphocytes. So it, it's still a big open question and the prevalence is, is still somewhat um, in debate. Um, I'll talk a little bit about biomarkers of abnormal energy metabolism uh, in children with neurodevelopmental disorders and autism. And, and this is an interesting study uh, where uh, we reviewed the metabolic studies in 133 consecutive patients that I saw in my clinic. And we looked at a wide range of biomarkers, including those that um, look for fatty acid oxidation defects. Um, and uh, what we found is that, uh, that if you look um, at uh, some of these biomarkers, if you test them once, such as lactate, uh, what you'll see is that um, they may be abnormal a high percentage of time once, but then you have to test them again because there can be um, a high rate of false positivity. Um, and many people criticize many of the biomarker studies because they've only tested lactate once. And what I found is if you t uh, test it more than once, you actually uh, find that uh, half of the time about um, you can't confirm that the lactic acid is elevated. But half the time you can. Um, and so you have a, still a prevalence rate that's rather high and in this study, um, it was 11%. And that some of the other biomarkers that um, have been discussed um, in the literature, such as creatine kinase or alanine to lysine ratio, particularly, um, is, is elevated in 10%. And if you look at acylcarnitines, which are um, measures of fatty acid um, oxidation, that they can be elevated in 13% uh, um, of children, even after it's confirmed and you take into account false positivity. Um, and uh, the, uh, there's at least one paper that has looked at, uh, at um, abnormal um, fatty acid um, oxidation, reported abnormal fatty oxidation um, in a child with, uh, with autism, but um, it, it was, uh, I wouldn't say it was a, a rather complete paper, but 
there's more evidence that there may be, um, from some of the further studies that I've done with some of my colleagues, that there may be some problems with fatty acid oxidation. And this is an example. When we measure acylcarnitines, which are a measure of fatty acid oxidation, we find out that um, if you look at the kids that have consistent elevations, you'll find elevations um, consistently in short and long chain um, acylcarnitines, which um, is an interesting pattern, and it, it doesn't specifically um, uh, look at, uh, it doesn't specifically say that there's a particular type of fatty acid oxidation defect, but does say that there's something wrong in that pathway or some block in that pathway. But the interesting um, part is um, when you look at these kids, you actually find that they have a partial defect in, in, in complex 1-3 and the respiratory train, and they actually have abnormal um, electron microscopy. But one of the really interesting things is that if you look at Dr. McFabe's work from Canada, where he has a rodent model of, um, of autism, where he uses propionic acid, which is a mitochondrial toxin, uh, to, uh, to induce autistic behaviors, when he measures acylcarnitines, he sees this uh, exact same uh, pattern. So we're really excited that we're finding some uh, metabolic abnormalities and some possibly new biomarkers of abnormal mitochondrial function that correlate with a, an animal model. So uh, as I was saying briefly before, the studies that have looked at, um, uh, at the prevalence of mitochondrial disorders um, or mitochondrial disease in autism has really used the, um, uh, the modified Walker criteria, which um, weighs heavily on single complex dysfunction and uh, genetic markers. Um, and uh, what we found is that many of the children that have mitochondrial disease in, um, in autism don't have the classic genetic markers, uh, that is, mitochondrial mutations, to explain why their mitochondria isn't working um, well. Um, and in this paper by myself and Dr. Rosignol, what we did is we uh, looked at a different criteria for defining mitochondrial disease um, uh, called the Morova criteria. And this is a criteria that, uh, that relies more heavily on clinical abnormalities, uh, metabolic and neuroimaging biomarkers, and, um, and uh, morphology and histology from um, the results of muscle biopsies. And it's a nice criteria because it allows you to assign points to the different abnormalities and uh, come up with a scale that, uh, that tells you if mitochondrial disease is not likely or it's uh, definite. Um, the uh, part of the criteria is uh, for the clinical signs and symptoms. Um, it looks at several uh, different signs and symptoms in different categories, including muscular, CNS, that is the nervous system, um, or in other systemic um, um, areas of the body, other organ systems. And what we did is uh, we, um, we divided up the different systems into those that um, are probably associated with ASD, that has been, has been associated with ASD uh, many times, might be or probably not. And what we could see is that many of the symptoms, um, muscle weakness, myopathies, developmental delays, loss of skills, seizures, GI tract abnormalities, endocrine growth abnormalities, um, familiar inheritance neuropathies are all um, medical abnormalities that have been um, associated with, um, um, with autism spectrum disorder. So you can start to see how clinically the picture, some of the same symptoms that we see in, in kids with autism overlap with um, what we see in mitochondrial disorders. Um, if we look at biomarkers, um, we see that uh, many of the biomarkers that have been reported as elevated um, in, uh, in our meta-analysis were, uh, were, uh, um, are those that um, are important for uh, this criteria. Um, and that um, when people have looked at the muscle of children with autism, that, uh, um, that uh, many of the uh, findings that have been reported um, on the, uh, uh, in children that um, have undergone muscle biopsies that have autism and uh, mitochondrial disorder fit right within this criteria. So this is another way of approaching the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease 
um, uh, that doesn't rely on single complex deficiency and um, uh, <coughs> and or mitochondrial DNA um, abnormalities. Um, and this is a, uh, and the, the last slide in that series is a, a nice summary of mitochondrial function and the symptoms that are and are not seen um, in kids with autism disorder, autism and overlap with mitochondrial uh, disease. Going back to our meta-analysis, um, we, uh, one of the things we did in our meta-analysis is we uh, took all cases um, that have been reported of kids with mitochondrial disease and autism, and we abstracted uh, the uh, percentage of different symptoms and other um, uh, laboratory abnormalities that have been reported in those kids. And then we compare them to the general autism population um, and uh, a general population of uh, children with mitochondrial disease but not autism to see where there were significant differences. And, and what we found is that, um, that in kids with mitochondrial disease and autism spectrum disorder, as compared to the general autism population, that uh, the children with um, uh, mitochondrial disease were, most, were much more likely to have seizures, um, um, developmental regression, um, and GI abnormalities, particularly, 74% of them, 74% of the cases reported of mitochondrial disease and autism had GI abnormalities. Interestingly, there was a high rate of motor delays, but not, uh, but, but hypotonia itself, which um, many children have, um, the rate of hypotonia was not significantly different. So it's important to differentiate those two. That is, kids with autism and mitochondrial disease seem to have a high rate of motor delays, but hypotonia seems to be equal in both groups. Um, of course, elevated lactate and pyruvate. One of the things that we were um, very um, interested in um, um, is the fact that when you look down at the bottom line, you see um, where we looked at the percentage of mitochondrial DNA abnormalities that were reported. And um, in all of the cases of um, children with mitochondrial disease and autism, only 23% of them um, had a reported um, mitochondrial DNA abnormality. Um, and so that leaves a large percentage of them where the, um, the abnormality could either be in the, uh, the nuclear DNA or can be, um, um, could be secondary to, other, uh, to failure of other metabolic systems or could be a complex interaction um, of, uh, of certain polymorphisms in the genome um, associated with other risk factors possibly from the environment. Um, there's an interesting study by Weissman, and I want to point this out because they showed some interesting characteristics of kids with um, mitochondrial disease um, and autism spectrum disorder that seemed to differentiate them from the run-of-the-mill children with autism. And those included high rates of fatigability and unusual patterns of regression. That is, sometimes not a single regression, but multiple regressions. Um, and I've put in the algorithm we use for diagnosis of mitochondrial uh, disease. Um, and then one thing I wanted to point out is we have a paper that was recently published on um, hyperfunction of complex four in, uh, in individuals with autism and mitochondrial um, disease. Um, and, um, and as an example, um, I present um, a case series I have of 14 children that were diagnosed with mitochondrial disease by the Morova criteria. And um, we have a slide that, uh, that points out um, the, uh, the level of um, electron uh, um, uh, transport chain function of um, complexes one through four. Um, and if we look at this slide, what we see is that if we look over at complex four, that there's several individuals that have complex four function that's over 150% of normal. Um, and if we sort this and just say, well, um, for each patient, 
what was the highest complex uh, function, what we find is that uh, some individuals on the left-hand side of the slide um, have um, uh, their maximal complex function is very depressed at about 50% of normal. And then some of them, particularly ones with complex 4 overfunction, have complex 4 function of 150% of normal. So um, Dr. Navarro and I um, have a paper describing these kids. And it's, it's, an, it's important um, to recognize that overfunction may be an abnormality too, and that uh, criteria such as the modified Walker criteria, which looks for um, single complex deficiencies, would not pick this up or define these kids as having mitochondrial disease. So why is mitochondrial disease associated with autism? Um, it's not really clear. One of the reasons is that, uh, is that we know that uh, the, the peak of brain growth is just after the first year of life. This requires energy. It requires the mitochondria to be intact, to produce building blocks um, for the brain and other parts of the body. Um, and, um, and this is uh, a time when um, uh, we see uh, regression in these children. So it would make sense that as, as the brain grows and picks up and reaches its peak, that if the mitochondria was not working, that you would see a stagnation or a regression in development. Um, there's also the theory that mitochondrial dysfunction may interact with environmental toxins and other genetic defects to cause increased toxic free radicals, which can cause cell damage and death. So how do we treat mitochondrial disorders? Well, um, there's uh, standard treatments with, uh, with um, uh, vitamin supplementations that will help uh, the mitochondrial um, enzymes um, uh, um, uh, work, that is cofactors that they use, um, we can give high doses of. Also, um, other antioxidants to uh, prevent the body um, from, um, from having too many uh, reactive species can be helpful, it's thought. We know that vitamin E and vitamin C are very important, um, especially for um, regenerating uh, CoQ10, which is an essential part of the electron transport chain. Of course, um, you have to avoid any stressors that might cause regression, such as dehydration, fever, viral illnesses, and specific drugs. And this might be um, something that's really very uh, specific to autism, as the Schaffner paper looked at 28 patients with uh, um, autism spectrum disorder and mitochondrial disease, and he found that 17 of them had a history of regression. And for the most part, most of those kids that regressed, regressed um, right after a fever, within 14 days of having a fever. And a small number of these, um, the, there was a vaccination that induced the fever, um, but the fever was something that, that always preceded the uh, regression. So um, uh, this is one area where we may be inter able to intervene if we can figure out which kids have mitochondrial dysfunction or disease um, early in life um, and protect them from things like viral illnesses or other reasons why they may have um, fever. Of course, there are many drug interactions, including antibiotics that can be toxic to the mitochondria, other substances that can be toxic to the mitochondria, um, including acetaminophen, antipsychotics. Um, there's a, this, I've put in this slide from Peter O'Brien at University of Toronto where he actually shows which drugs seem to affect which complexes, um, just for a little bit more uh, technical detail. There's specific diets, such as the ketogenic diet, the modified Atkins diet, um, and sometimes complex carbohydrate supplementation. Um, it's, uh, it, there hasn't been a lot of studies on which diet works for which type of mitochondrial disorder, and this should always be done um, under the care of a physician that has experience with these diets. One of the things where I've found that um, we can make a lot of difference is looking at the secondary effects of mitochondrial um, disorders. 
That is that we know if you have mitochondrial disease, you'll have uh, many children will have gastrointestinal dysfunction and dysmotility, thyroid dysfunction, adrenal dysfunction, immune system dysfunction, cardiovascular dysfunction, and uh, brain dysfunction, including in specific areas. They tend to have seizures, cerebral folate deficiency, which I'll talk about, and abnormalities in neurotransmitters that require um, um, a lot of energy to be produced, including acetylcholine and, um, and GABA causing an imbalance in the excitatory inhibitory balance of the brain. So now I'll go on to talk about cerebral folate deficiency, which I think is a very, very um, important disorder that's been recently discovered. Um, for us, uh, so folate, as, uh, um, as many of us know, is a very important vitamin. It's important for many metabolic systems. Um, and it's important for our body to have folate, especially during development. Um, uh, one uh, disorder called cerebral folate deficiency was uh, described by um, Rainmakers um, in 2003, where there, he found that there was low folate um, in the nervous system. Um, and in 2005, uh, one of the mechanisms of why that occurred was worked out. So this is a diagram of how folate comes into your body. Um, it comes in uh, through uh, the, the gut. It's transported um, into the bloodstream. And then in order to get to the bloodstream, um, it has to go through a folate transporter to get across the blood-brain barrier into the uh, brain. And that requires a, um, a specific folate transporter uh, called FR1. Um, and in 2005, it was found that FR1 could be blocked by an autoantibody that, uh, uh, that binds to it. In addition, and very interestingly, is that this transporter also requires energy, ATP. And in 2007, there was cases that were started to be reported of individuals with mitochondrial disorders that had cerebral folate deficiency, potentially because they, the folate transporter did not have the energy to bring folate into the nervous system. Um, and uh, so we found that there is actually two mechanisms to block folate um, to get into uh, the brain. The classic cerebral folate deficiency that was uh, uh, originally uh, reported um, has uh, an onset uh, before a year of life um, and is associated with regression um, in cognition and development of skills associated with signs of spasticity, not unlike cerebral palsy, decreasing head growth, um, development of seizures, um, and if, uh, if not completely treated um, can lead to visual loss and hearing loss. Um, many um, phenotypes have been described, including um, this antibody-mediated cerebral folate deficiency, uh, initially, initially this infantile onset cerebral folate deficiency, then uh, children with low IQ and autism with neurological deficits were described uh, cerebral folate deficiency with mitochondrial encephalopathy, and then um, um, it was also associated with Rett syndrome. Um, one paper was very interesting where they actually measured antibody titer um, and aggressive behavior in a child with autism and showed that the antibody titer correlated with the variation in aggressive behavior. Just recently, this year, in um, January, we um, published an article on, cerebral, on the cerebral folate receptor autoantibodies in autism spectrum disorder as a potential cause for cerebral folate uh, deficiency in autism, um, in the general autism population, that is. Um, and also, as I had mentioned previously, the, um, uh, the uh, children with uh, mitochondrial uh, disease and complex four hyperfunction, three out of five of them 
also had cerebral folate deficiency. And we report that in our uh, paper um, uh, this year. Um, in our molecular psychiatry paper, we looked at the prevalence of these antibodies in 93 children with autism spectrum disorder and found that, um, looked at the two antibodies, a blocking antibody and a binding antibody, um, and we found a very high prevalence of these antibodies being positive. That is, that the percentage of patients with the blocking antibody um, that had autism was about 60%, and they may have had low, medium, or high levels of this antibody. For the binding antibody, about 50% of them had the, um, the antibody. If you look at um, either antibody, um, overall, 75% of the children with autism spectrum disorder had at least one of these different antibodies. What we did is uh, some children underwent a lumbar puncture um, to actually measure the level of um, cerebral uh, of folate in the central nervous system, um, um, and, uh, and others uh, the parents uh, did not want to undergo that, but they would rather try empirical treatment with something called phalenic acid um, to see if it would improve um, their child's cognition. Um, in about four months at follow-up, we asked parents to rate whether there was worsening or improving um, on uh, nine different areas um, of development. And then we compared this to um, children that were on uh, what we call wait list control. That is, they were waiting for results to come back, and we asked the parents the same question. Um, and what we found is that consistently, uh, children that responded to folinic acid who had the um, autoantibody um, improved in, ex in receptive and expressive language, verbal communication, stereotype behavior, and attention. Um, also, Folate is very important for um, producing um, not, not only the building blocks of DNA and RNA, but also something called tetrahydrobiopterin, which we know um, has been shown to be low in children with autism and is important for making neurotransmitters for the brain to work. Um, the Quattros and Rainmakers did a, a nice study where they looked at children with cerebral folate deficiency and, um, and um, examined um, when they were treated, the, uh, the age of commencement of treatment, um, if they recovered from symptoms. Um, and they found that neurologic symptoms, many of them um, went away completely, whereas other symptoms, uh, such as mental retardation and autism, were hard um, to, uh, to eliminate, um, but in some cases did. But the story is the earlier the treatment, the better. <coughs> One, uh, another paper by uh, Raymakers that was um, very important was showing that a milk-free diet down-regulated um, the autoantibody, so it was a potential treatment for children with cerebral folate deficiency and the uh, folate receptor autoantibody. Um, and they looked at uh, various types of milk including bovine milk, goat milk, human milk, um, and they found that all of them actually um, uh, would cause an increase in the autoantibody. Recently, Quattros has looked at, um, uh, at camel's milk also because that seems to be something that's popular um, in uh, the autism community, and he found that, indeed, that also um, contains uh, the folate uh, receptors and has the potential to increase the folate autoantibody. So um, at this point, I'll take uh, questions. Great, Dr. Fry, thank you so much for this comprehensive overview of information. And uh, I'm sure that there are some questions, so let me open up the lines, and everyone will just take turns asking questions. You can uh, just, just like you were in a virtual classroom, we'll just uh, take a turn and just tell us briefly uh, a little background and then the questions. So bear with me. You'll hear a couple beeps, and we'll open up for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Fry. All right, so uh, ready? We'll go ahead and let... Um, 
have time to take quite a few, so we'll just go in line. So who would like to ask the first question? I have a question, if it's okay. Okay, go um, ahead. Would you introduce yourself briefly first? Sure. My name is Jill, and I have a five-year-old that has been diagnosed with a clinical diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, and he seems to go in and out of high-functioning autism. Um, he can be completely normal, and then like a switch kind of turns into almost like he's acting. It's like sensory seeking, and his whole personality just changes. I have not been able to track down a trigger. Um, does that even make sense? Does that go with the flow of something you've seen before? Yes, it it, it very much does. Um, and 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 you know, a lot of what we've done in the past is uh, we've called this uh, we call uh, we've done what we call hand waving. That is, you know, made some assumptions and said, oh, there must be some quality compensation that's occurring. What what I found is um, in some children that uh, that the immune um, uh, could be uh, something that's affected. I don't know if they get sick during these time points, but we've seen changes in the immune system. Some children where they very sick or get sick. Um, it also can be variations. So let me remind everyone that you can use star six to mute and unmute your phone because we're getting a lot of background noise. Sorry, that's not me. Use um, star six to mute and unmute your phone so that we get a little um, reduce the background noise. Um, Doctor Fry, I apologize if you can um, talk over it best you can, and otherwise I can mute everyone while you answer the question. Just go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sure. So it, it's it's a it, it's something that that is seen. The reason why it occurs it's not clear. Um, it um, some um, children um, we've linked it is in the immune system um, that seems to be working poorly um, um, and has a variable um, function. It also can be variation in mitochondrial function. Um, um, what's best. Do um, is to uh, really work with a physician and to do a comprehensive set of labs um, when child's well, when they're in the state um, of decompensation, to find out exactly what's going on. And I would look at a comprehensive set of labs, that is mitochondrial function, but also um, immune function. Um, and also, you know, see if he's affected by the cerebral folate um, 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 autoantibody. Um, and, um, and you can try and get a sense if there's something there that seems to be varying that you can um, uh, target treatment at. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Dr. Fry. I have a question that's come in through email. Okay. So, uh, so the question is uh, about high blocking antibodies to folate and uh, your comments on that particular diagnosis because this question is related to a child who was diagnosed with PDD nonspecific at two years old and is now 11 um, and has moderate to severe autism, but with this diagnosis of high blocking antibodies to folate has made a little bit of progress on leucovorin, um, but there's been some challenges with, I guess, that diagnosis and um, inherent disbelief of the diagnosis. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Dr. Fry? Um, did, the, did the child have a lumbar puncture or not? Um, this parent says that they chose not to find a doctor to do a spinal tap because... Um, and they didn't want to take him off now. So it's um, um, uh, so um, the, yeah, and, and and this is really the um, uh, the issue we get to um, when we haven't done a lumbar puncture. You know, a, a lumbar puncture. You know, I think it's reasonable, and we thought it was reasonable without a lumbar puncture to have a trial of um, folinic acid. Um, to see if children will respond. However, of course, response, um, there can be a big placebo response also. And that's one of the reasons we're starting um, a double-blind placebo control study now to kind of confirm our previous findings. But um, um, without, uh, what the lumbar puncture does, um, 
is it proves that there is a, um, a low level of folate in the nervous system, um, and then you have a certain diagnosis, um, and then you can treat, um, and if the child doesn't respond, you can do a repeat lumbar puncture and ask, well, is it because they didn't have folate in their nervous system, or is it something else? So why wouldn't they respond? And uh, the problem is there's, there's many reasons. One, um, the, the dose of leucovorin might not be high enough. Um, two, they may have something else going on. That is, they, uh, they, they could have a mitochondrial disorder that is compounding the, um, uh, the, uh, the folate autoantibody um, and not only preventing folate from getting into the nervous system, but causing additional problems also. Um, it could be that, um, that additional treatment is needed. If the, if the antibody is very high, um, folic, uh, folinic acid may not be a complete treatment, and some um, um, have used um, immunomodulary treatments like steroids or IVIG to decrease the, uh, the level of the autoantibody. So, um, so there's lots of reasons, and it's not an easy question to answer. And what you have to do is kind of systematically go down the line um, and find out uh, what's wrong. Now, with that said, um, even a lumbar puncture can be somewhat inconclusive. That is, that in our study, when we uh, did uh, lump on the children that underwent a lumbar puncture, very few of them had a folate level that was below the lower limit of normal, but all of them had low normal folate levels. So um, this is where we get into something called um, insufficiency versus deficiency. That is, um, everybody's body is different. And when we say that there's a range of normal folate, it may be that for me, my body needs more folate than somebody else's body. So low normal may not be enough for, um, for some individuals. And we see this kind of theme over and over again in individuals with autism. Um, and it may be that a low normal folate level in the CSF is not enough. And, um, and this has been reported that children that have a low normal folate respond to folinic acid very well with improvements in seizures and development. So, unfortunately, there's not an easy answer to the question. <clears throat> if um, uh, I wanted to be very systematic about it, what I do is I take children off of folinic acid for um, anywhere from two weeks to four weeks and then do a lumbar puncture to actually document what the level is. But, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not an easy and simple um, question to answer and it'll probably take a very, uh, somebody that's very systematic and um, take uh, um, a comprehensive workup to figure out the answer to that, uh, to that child's uh, problem. Okay, uh, great. And Dr. Fry, I'm getting a few more questions via email, so if you don't mind, we'll just go ahead with those. And uh, I appreciate your time. Do you have a few more minutes for a couple more questions? Uh, sure, sure. Great. Uh, so one of the questions you had mentioned in your in your comments just a few minutes ago about other approaches, one of the questions is about B cell de depletion therapy, and if you knew if that had been um, used for kids with autism with cerebral folate receptor antibodies or immune system dysfunction, any experience with that? So um, B cell depletion therapy, mm -hmm. yeah. No, I don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, I think we need to be very careful um, in how we uh, uh, approach the treatment of uh, children with immune dysregulation in autism because um, the data is uh, uh, it's very clear that the immune system is not working normally. You know, I think that's very clear. In a subset of children with autism, it's really clear that something's gone awry but I don't think we have a good handle on what has gone awry. So I think we need to be very careful because we also 
can mess things up as much as we can help. So to tell you the truth, I'm not familiar with the therapy. Um, I can understand why somebody would, would try it, um, especially with the uh, number of abnormal autoantibodies that we see in children with autism, but I don't know of any uh, studies that have really documented efficacy with it. Great, great thoughts. Let's talk about um, labs just briefly for a moment. Uh, one question that I hear quite a bit from parents is that it's difficult because labs are inconsistent. And um, we know that even labs that are, I would say, considered uh, important primary labs like lactic and pyruvic acid can be, you know, you can get three different readings if you do it once a month over a period of time. Um, what are your thoughts about that and, and thoughts also about the subtleties of testing for cerebral folate deficiency? Well, um, first, uh, the first thing that I see that, that's done wrong with uh, mitochondrial labs is they're not, um, they're not done fasting. Um, and I do all of my labs fasting to make sure um, that's, uh, that's consistent. Um, the, uh, the overnight fast provides um, something uh, that's, that's really um, that's good is that uh, it stresses the body metabolically. So we have a, 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 um, a, a kind of standard metabolic stress that, uh, that uh, and we can look at how mitochondria um, um, uh, you know, approach uh, or, or react to that. I think that any abnormal lab needs to be confirmed, um, but uh, we have to realize that sometimes these labs do fluctuate for different reasons. Um, I think we have to get away from being lactate-centric because there's, uh, that is only thinking that lactate is the holy grail because there's many cases of children that have other abnormalities, um, such as elevations in the alanine to lysine ratio, um, elevations in acyl carnitines, and such, <clears throat> but not elevations um, in lactate. Um, so um, it's it's not it's not that easy. And there's children that don't have any metabolic abnormalities um, that go on to get a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. So it's 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 um, it, it, you know, uh, mitochondrial disease really um, was first described in the 1980s. So it, it's a relatively new disease in our field of medicine. Um, and so, and we don't have the really great biomarkers. And so you have to be very critical. You know, I'd say if you do a set of labs a number of times and, um, and they're always negative, then it's very unlikely that you have mitochondrial disease. Um, but if you have a child that has multi-system dysfunction, GI problems, thyroid problems, uh, seizures, then you have to have a high index of suspicion of mitochondrial disease. And that's why I think the Morova criteria is very good because it, you can add up the points um, of the different abnormalities that you find and um, decide whether or not to go forward with um, a mitochondrial um, um, workup. Um, with cerebral folate deficiency, um, you know, at, at this point, um, we really just have the um, the auto um, uh, the uh, auto antibody to help us point us in the right direction. Um, with that said, any child that's diagnosed with mitochondrial disease, you know, I believe should have a lumbar puncture because they can have cerebral folate deficiency uh, secondary to mitochondrial disease and the antibody could be negative. So, um, uh, so I'm sorry it's not a, a straightforward answer, but, but that's, uh, um, it, it, it's, 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 it's complicated and I don't think we have you know, a straightforward way of really going about workups at this time. And let's talk a little bit about side effects also. Um, I do hear parents of kids with MitoASD talk about side effects of some of the compounds in the MitoCocktail uh, causing aggression or um, more violent behavior or um, even some hyperactivity. 
um, which you would expect with CoQ10, but the aggression seems to be unique. And then uh, there's a question from a parent saying that their child actually had that response to folate supplementation. Have you um, experienced this in your practice? Yeah. So um, you have to be careful. I'm To tell you the truth, I'm not one to just throw all the mito supplements at once. Um, there's particular mito supplements that uh, that um, that seem to cause um, problems with behavior. Um, one thing I'll say about folate is that folic acid will actually exacerbate cerebral folate deficiency, um, and it will actually uh, make the transport of folate uh, across the blood-brain barrier worse in the context of um, um, of the autoantibody. And if you have the autoantibody, um, it's important to use a reduced form of folate, like methotetrahydrofolate or folinic acid. Um, other supplements. Um, so uh, B6 is notorious for causing um, aggression and hyperactivity in kiddos. I don't think we know why that is, but it's um, uh, but some kids do better on P5P um, than regular paradoxine. Um, but uh, but that is uh, definitely reported. Um, carnitine um, is very interesting. There's a few studies that have shown that it improves overall function in children with um, uh, with autism. Yet some of the some of the kids that have these elevations in acyl carnitines um, actually start to become somewhat aggressive and hyperactive when it's first given. Um, which then calms down. And we, we feel that this might be because there's um, actually fatty acids trapped in the cell, which are then mobilized by carnitine, especially if carnitine was depleted for some period of time. Um, so you have to be careful um, with all the supplements. To tell you the truth, I've never heard that with CoQ10, but I don't use CoQ10 specifically. I use Wibiquinol um, since it has better bioavailability. Um, I'm going to try un unmuting our lines again because I am getting a few more questions by email but want people to have a chance to ask as well. And uh, if, we, if we lose our call quality, then we'll, we'll go back to this way. So bear with me one sec. I have All a right. question on dosage. Yeah, so um, is this a – Brian, I was going to hand the floor to you. So oh. go ahead with your question. Great, thank you. Um, I, I have a question on dosage. We're actually seeing um, a doctor uh, in Texas, uh, Dr. Kendall Stewart, and done a lot of things with him. Leucovorin is a fairly new thing we're doing. And um, my son, about 11 years old, he's um, about, 100, about 100 pounds, and he's on 20 milligrams a day. We increased that from 10. The one thing we're struggling with is how to tell if he has the right amount of the leucovorin he's getting. Because I, I read the study, and it says the 2 milligrams per kilogram up to 50 milligrams. And I'm trying to understand, in your experience, um, how do you know when you've got the right dosage, and how do you know if you should up it, or how you how you know you should uh, cut it down? Um, the so dosage reason one of the reasons we use folinic acid is um, it, it we have it based on the studies of cerebral folate deficiency um, and kids that have undergone repeat um, lumbar punctures. Um, so we know what dose enables kids with cerebral folate deficiency to get um, good methyl tetrahydrofolate levels in the central nervous system. So that's what the dosing is based on. Um, the only way to know for sure is to do a lumbar puncture before and after. What uh, we usually do is we start out at, at, at one milligram per kilogram um, per day divided um, by two daily doses um, uh, for about two weeks, and then we up it to two milligrams per kilogram per day, um, up to 25 milligrams twice a day. Um, and that's based on uh, this uh, data um, from cerebral folate deficiency. I'll tell you that kids that have mitochondrial um, disease and cerebral folate deficiency may benefit from higher doses. Um, they may not. But it, it could be that they benefit from higher doses because, um, in that case, the rather than the transporter being blocked, it's not working at all. So 
without being able to measure it directly, um, the uh, the uh, way to um, determine if it's making a difference or not is to make changes systematically um, and then see if there's any change over a, a period of time. I usually give it uh, two months, six weeks to two months. Usually, from what we saw in our study, the changes occurred within, um, within a month, the uh, changes in behavior and cognition. Great. Interesting. All right. I um, had to mute again because of the call quality, so I'm just going to take the next question I have by email. Thank you, Dr. Fry. Uh, and we'll be wrapping up, so we'll um, close up our questions, and I'll let everyone know how they can email additional questions. Uh, so one person was speculating on uh, what the what you might feel is the reason that there are more boys than girls affected by autism, and if any of your research has helped to uh, give you any insight on that. Um, it's it, it's a great question, um, um, and there's many different theories. Um, it may be that the, the way that the female brain develops is more neuroprotective than the way that the, the male brain um, develops, um, and, and that has to do with, um, uh, you know, neurohormones, and that's that's possibly um, uh, one reason. I think it has to do with females just being um, more able to compensate for, um, for, certain, um, uh, uh, for certain incidences, uh, certain um, 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 uh, um, areas of damage um, as compared to males. And probably their brain is more adaptable and has more reserve. Um, but um, that's my own personal theory. There's lots and lots of theories of why it is. Really interesting. Um, so, Dr. Fry, we're going to have to wrap it up and um, and thank you so much for uh, sharing all of this information today as well as for, you know, being a, um, a champion for kids who are struggling with mito and autism and learning more about the research in this field. I wanted to offer everyone that if you have additional questions for Dr. Fry, you can email me, director at mitoaction.org, and I'll compile those and share them with Dr. Fry, and then we'll take the answers to those questions and incorporate them into the comments or the summary on our website where the recording for today will be posted and where you found the slides linked for today. Uh, and then, Dr. Fry, as you have the opportunity to be able to um, accept additional patients, if you would please share that information with me, I'll certainly put that on the website as well so that folks can go right back to the page where they found the information today to get that info. Super. All right. So, Dr. Fry, thank you so much. Do you have any closing comments? Um, no, I mean I, I, I you know I hope it was informative. There's a lot of material, and it's a, and I know that it's very frustrating for parents because it's a very complex uh, field, and um, I think that there's many doctors there trying their best to just, you know, try and figure it out. Uh, well, Dr. Fry, it's it's always so wonderful to hear someone like you who is um, so approachable and really um, interested in helping make a difference. You know in understanding and teasing out the intricacies of something like this. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing this information with us. And um, let me just unmute the line so everyone can join me in saying thank you. So everyone, please join me in saying thank you to Dr. Fry. Thank you, Dr. Fry. We appreciate thank your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, so anyone who's anyone, on the call, this, it would be very relevant for you guys to join us on June 12th for our Mito Autism Task Force meeting. We uh, will recap some of the questions and answers and um, discussion points from today and talk about the field of autism and mitochondrial disease. That's on June 12th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time same call-in number as today. And if you look on MitoAction's calendar or mitoaction.org slash autism, you'll find that as well. 
finally, you can also email autism at mitoaction.org and uh, connect with Alyssa Davy and I, who um, are happy to bounce back ideas and, and offer more information um, through email back and forth personally as well. So, everyone, thank you again, Dr. Fry. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. And uh, everyone will be regrouping in July. Um, please stay on the lookout for the date in July because it because of the Fourth of July holiday. We won't be on the first Friday. We'll actually be having a special speaker broadcast live from the Next Step Face Forward retreat for young adults with mitochondrial disease the second week of July. So stay tuned to the website and our Facebook page and email to find that. And as always, if I can be of help to you, director at mitoaction.org is the way to reach me. Thank you so much for your support and for joining us today, and uh, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Thank you, Christy. Thanks, Christy. Thank you.